Pete, it's always so much fun to get together with you because we have so much to talk about. We always run out of time before we do topics. You, um, for those that aren't familiar with what you do in the market, you, you do a lot of consulting, business practice optimization, technology implementations uh, across the ecosystem. So you see things firsthand inside of an operation, what's working, what's not. Sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about this tech phenomenon, this venture capital. It feels like, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of years, is like 2015, 2022 is this boom cycle in venture capital investing into the space. And now we're past that. We're at the other end of that cycle. And maybe this is sort of the end of it. And hopefully at some point we'll come to a new, new type of cycle. But before we do that, we have to clear off some of the excesses. <laughs> we'll talk about where, from your, in your opinion, what are the things that are at most r- risk in this climate? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about, so I, I came to the space in 2015, actually. I mean, I did some supply chain work before that, but kind of officially came to the space in 2015. And I think it's worth talking about that while we saw a huge increase in venture spend or, or venture investment, um, there's, there's been a, hu- uh, a major shift in, in how transportation logistics businesses think about technology in that time frame too that i think enabled that um and what what we saw was that you know i mean you look at like the coyote remember when ups bought coyote and a big part of their they got this crazy multiple and a big part of that was because of their proprietary technology and then all of a sudden everybody wanted proprietary technology and at the same time venture investment came in and started started kind of creating technology for the people to enable small mid-sized businesses um, what I think gets under, uh, covered, if you will, or, or isn't talked about enough is that, um, there wasn't, there wasn't enough emphasis on adoption, successful adoption, utilization of technology and maximizing the value. And so what I see is kind of like the, the biggest risk area are, venture venture backed businesses that have raised on huge valuations based on a future grand promise when in reality they really only solve a very specific problem right now and have to and have to kind of go through that maturation of as a business how do you actually realize the value of the technology point, a point solution versus an actual platform that's going to overhaul the business totally you you mentioned or you said something i think was interesting is that at the time when Coyote sold to UPS, it was a crazy valuation. Totally. I want to put that in perspective for our audience that may not know. So it was a, reportedly about one times revenue was the, the number that I am familiar with, about 1.8. When you go look at Convoy, sort of the peak of what it raised at versus what, you know, it was at four times X revenue was the peak, but where it was at versus what it raised at. Right. And in some of the earlier parts of its raises, it was raising at 10, 20 even greater uh, 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 multiples on revenue. If you look at net revenue, the math is even more challenging there. <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not <laughs> I don't know that my calculator, my brain can do that math right now. Um, but when we look at what's happening, you know, Coyote certainly sent a message that this market was investable. Sure. And people were willing to take leaps. But there's been this entire breakout evolution of other investments that have take, taken place in the space where valuations haven't made a lot of sense, or sure. at least certainly are, are even more compelling than what Coyote was. What happened? Where did it, was it the investors 
were drunk on these business models and this sort of thought that they could go and disrupt this massively big industry? Were founders telling a story that didn't live up to its promise? Did everybody sort of serve everyone's mutual interest? Like, how did we get to a point where we now had companies that faced overfunding? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a question of, of um, you know, were there valuations that people were trying to justify or, or were they actually, like, was it a top-down or bottoms-up valuation? And then, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've always kind of struggled with, Convoy was an incredible business. They built best-in-class technology, you know, and at the same time, I look at a company like Echo Global Logistics that has been known as kind of a tech-forward brokerage, a tech-enabled 3PL, which is effectively what Convoy um, uh, marketed themselves as. And, you know, I, I think the Jordan company's investment in Echo, taking Echo private a few years ago was probably one of the best transactions to ever happen in the history of the space. And, and it's because Jordan understood the business and made an investment based on the underlying economics of the business and not a software, a software company valuation for a business that was really more of a tech-enabled services business. And that was, what, a $2 billion revenue business, a little bit over a billion-dollar exit? Yeah. Or a billion-dollar well, right? Yeah, purchase, yeah, market cap. I mean, it was what half they, of what the Coyote investment was. And, like, we're talking about uh, Convoy's math doesn't even, you know, it's, it's a completely different sort of, uh, of realm of possibility. You know, I have argued that Convoy failed because it had gotten overfunded. Is that sure. it, it fundamentally built a, a good enterprise, one that wasn't profitable. But the challenge was it because it was priced for perfection, there were few options available for it as it sort of the market switched on it. Do you buy that philosophy or do you think it's more fundamental? Um you know, over, overfunding is an issue because then what ends up happening is to justify the overfunding, you set growth projections, and then you have to, and then you justify spending money to hit the growth of projections. I mean, you know, I've seen reports that Convoy was burning 10 million plus a month for the last year. Like, I mean, imagine if they just cut that number in half, which, based on my understanding of kind of their burn and what they were paying people, wouldn't have been. I mean, it's not like they had to cut. The um, the headcount in half to to get to that savings. So I cut the really high cost engineers and, and other. A hand, yeah, some of them for sure. I mean, I think uh, you know, and then, but but the reality is, is like you're justifying you're justifying spend as a means to an end, and 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 the unfortunate reality is that how businesses are fundamentally valued has changed over the last eighteen months. Like it's in in a high, and this is where I don't. I'm not enough, um, or I, I don't know kind of the, the finance side well enough, but my directional understanding is that in a low interest rate environment, the value of future cash flow is significantly higher than current. To right? just kind of cash flow multiple. Right? Exactly. Like when you, right? when you, your cost of capital goes up four or five, whatever multiple you apply to it, you're definitely going to impact the cash flows of the business. Correct. And or the, so, the for cash, the DCF model. Exactly. And so, you know, yes. They're absolutely at uh, a byproduct of of overfunding, and I also think that um, you have to at least acknowledge the fact that the game and the metrics that they were used to be measured on changed in the middle of their 
of their journey. And, and really in the last year. Totally. Two years. In, yeah, in the last 18 months. I mean, and that's some businesses can adopt to that. But when you've built an entire an entire enterprise around it, that that's really challenging. I mean, you've 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 probably experienced some of that with freight waves. You know, we um we got into a pretty significant cash crunch and in, in during COVID. Sure. Started COVID. Uh, timing was not on our side and our business fundamentals slowed. I mean, we were at one point triple digit growth year over year, uh, heading into 2020. And it dropped from like, I don't remember the number, 150% year over year to like 80%. Sure. But it was enough to like slow down the story. And we had timed our capital raise for January of 2020. We're in a process starting in January, 2020. We were expecting term sheets in March of 2020. And we only had cash to May. Sure. You can imagine... <laughs> When all of a sudden, the like, and half my revenue was events like this, physical events. Sure. Where we were doing $11 million, 5.5 of that was in physical events. And, like, the world's changed. Yeah. And for us, it was a timing deal uh, mechanism. But one of the advantages of that was we got really disciplined on cash. Sure. And we did not add significant amounts of people during the COVID increase. My business, you know, Freightway's business went from, if you take, the full of business from $11 million in 2019. It's up 4X in, in that from 2019 to today in terms of a 400% increase. But our staff levels from January, we had 152 employees. And I think the latest number is like 161. Like I've added 8% of the employees on a 400% revenue growth. And yeah. it, it is different. We have had to do the discipline thing because we were naturally like, um, uh, financially constrained. Right. Like I had to make the choice of what I call blitzscaling, which is this concept of throwing money for the sake of growth. I had to make the choice that I couldn't run the business that way. And I largely fired myself from every functional job because it's a lot more fun being the CEO of a business that gets to throw, like burn money and grow sure. at all costs and hire all these people and do these great things than it is a business that actually has to perform. And so I largely fired myself from those roles. The, the fact that we were constrained for the last three years meant that we didn't get drunk on the COVID excesses. Sure. I think Convoy's biggest challenge, and Convoy's not the only one, only a couple, we spent a lot of time talking about Convoy, they didn't have to face those constraints. I mean, if you look at their cap table, you had Bill Gates and Henry Kravis and Jeff Bezos and, you know, uh, uh, Reed Hoffman. I mean, yeah, you just Google go Man through the everything. list and it's like the dream team of, corporate, of tech corporate America. Sure. And I think they fundamentally thought they would be able to raise capital. I never had delusions of grand of the fact that I could somehow fight gravity if my business didn't perform. I didn't, you know, we have a great set of investors, but they reminded me, hey, like you you run out of cash, you run out of options, and you put you put yourselves in a really compromising position. That certainly forced me to to think differently about my business. But I, I don't think Convoy faced that. But there's a lot of other startups. You've talked about the fact that a lot of these startups that raise capital at really high valuations are effectively point solutions. Sure. Is they're solving one narrow piece of the pie. Where, where we, we spend a lot of time talking about brokerage, but there are a lot of other solutions in this space that have also been richly funded. Where have been the excesses uh, across the market? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, so I'm not sure that I would call it an excess, but, but I look at the visibility space as, you know, you look at, Project 44, Forkites, like they've done, they've done incredible things and have, and have driven a lot of automation and change in the space. But, 
but in terms of the vision of what they want to be and the impact that they want to have on on for their customers um you know they have a long way to go and 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 both businesses i mean jet came out um when 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 project 44 um did some some riffs a few months ago i mean jet did an open letter and talked about how their focus is on maximizing value for their customers i mean the reality is they and this kind of goes back to businesses under my opening comments about the the customers under investing in maximizing the value of the technology that they're investing in like the i mean the, the, this is the challenge is like you you would think that in today's world between data available from sonar project 44 green screens uh, like you know i mean historical data like if if you take five or six of these data sources theoretically someone should be able to predict with 95 plus percent accuracy who's the best carrier who's the best driver who's the best capacity provider what what's the right rate for your business when's the when's the truck going to arrive and the reality is like a lot of these customers are buying tech and then they just kind of plug it into what they have they're not actually changing the way that they fundamentally do business as a result of the technology they're using it to make an incremental improvement on what they already do today. And, and that's what I think is the biggest existential threat to the venture-backed tech companies, is that, is that, they're, is that uh, right or wrong, like you're almost, you as the, as, as the, as the CEO of, of FreightWaves and Sonar, like you're almost, you're subject to the success, to, to the attention that your customer puts to, on maximizing value of your products. Absolutely. I I also think we're we're subject to the success of the other technologies that have been invested. I mean, one totally. of the biggest challenges that we've had at Sonar is, you know, we sell largely to the enterprise market is really our core focus, mm -hmm. enterprise customers. Um, we largely recognize that the SMB market is very volatile. A lot of companies going bankrupt in freight uh, sure. that are in the SMB market. The challenge is a lot of, we're also going after the same wallet, essentially, that before Kites and the Project 44s and other enterprise class software services have sold into. And these, to your point, these decision makers are looking and said, you know, I spent, I don't know, a million dollars on a, on a visibility solution, and I don't know that I got the ROI. Sure. And what we've seen is a, a slowdown in deal activity because now CFOs and procurement, because we're talking corporate enterprises where the decisions are made, sure. are sitting saying, hey, I didn't get an ROI on this technology that you brought me decision maker. Yeah. Why should, why I, should I invest in other technologies? And they actually have very different sort of use cases. Totally. I mean, our primary use case is to understand this balance of supply and demand and rate, the cost of moving freight across the market, which is very different than the value proposition of a visibility system. But when it comes out of the supply chain budget for technology, mm -hmm. we're only as good as the, as the budgets that Forkites and P44 and Vision and all these other providers if they have achieved success or not. So we have a vested interest in all of these solutions winning. Sure. Because it helps our business. If they aren't winning, then it, then it hurts the whole, the whole lot of them. Yeah, and what I think is interesting, is, uh, like picking up on the nuance of language that you used, the question isn't, we didn't get an ROI on this. It's, we don't know if we've gotten an ROI on this. I, th there's a big distinction there. They're not they're not suggesting they haven't gotten value out of it. It's that they can't, 
they don't know how to calculate the R the impact that it's had on their business. I mean, at, that, at a dollar, think of visibility yeah. tracking. So a dollar a, a load or whatever the sort of KPI that we're using in the sort of unit basis. If you actually are able to achieve real time tracking and know where your freight is, you're immensely successful. One of the things I hear on visibility is that like you can't track every single truck. There's no com- the compliance element hasn't been there. The, the thesis was I'm going to buy the solution and I'm going to get 100% implementation across my network, and I'm going to be able to see where all my freight is at all times, that just isn't happening mm-hmm. at that degree. And I think they recognize as an ROI on visibility if I can truly get 100% compliance, but they're not able to achieve that. And I think that's where one of the, the gaps is. At least that's what you know, feedback we've, been, we've heard. Yeah, and, and even you know, within ROI, like at the risk of kind of putting, putting my consultant hat on, <laughs> like you know, it's, there's hard and soft... ROI too, right? I mean, like with, with visibility, kind of the, the obvious one was if we have X number of people making Y number of phone calls that we pay Z, like if we can reduce those phone calls, then you can back into that is a direct cost reduction from investment in the technology. Those phone calls don't have to happen. You don't need as many logistics coordinators or transportation analysts or whatever, whatever they're called, whether you're a shipper, a 3PL or a carrier. Um, uh, you know, but but a lot of the value of these te- of these platform of these technologies when when they go out and sell, like to me, it seems like the direct the direct cost savings are kind of the foot in the door, but like the real sales pitch is all of this other all of the soft stuff that you can do. Hey, you'll be able you'll be able to to better negotiate with with your carriers because you have all this information that you can use to hold them accountable. Like you'll be able to improve your operations, it'll be a better customer experience. Like okay, cool. That all makes sense. Like I can sell that to the board, the CFO, whatever, but then, you know, a year later, post implementation, we're in, you know, everyone has a almost everyone has a constrained budget right now and 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 the reality is, like, I don't think that the CFOs are wrong for going back to the business sponsor saying, hey, you 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 sold me and the organization on this technology based on all of these benefits. And we've only really been able to see a little bit of this one. Who is who's dropping the ball? Is it the companies themselves? Is it is it providers like us and P44 and four kites? Is it the businesses that bought something on this sort of unrealistic expectations? Is it is it priorities shifted? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I I think that there's mutual accountability with the. I I mean, really, I I think it's the cust you know cu- customers, the buyers of the technology play a role and have some accountability as do the technology companies. So what did we do wrong? And I I'm I'm p- picking on myself. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I've got customers in the room, so tell yeah, me I love we, it. Where we got it wrong in terms of we didn't deliver the value proposition that we promised. Where is we as an industry? And frankly, where did we get it wrong? I think that the miss was oversimplifying, oversimplifying the value and the effort needed to achieve that value. I mean, this is something, you know, we do, we do is, as you mentioned, like we do tech consulting. We have partnerships with some, with some technology companies and, and, one of the things that we've, you know, it's obvious to everyone, you don't want to be 
after having signed a deal, go to a customer and say, by the way, we need another 50K to put an implementation team on your product to get the most value out of it. Like, I, I think that, that where the tech companies fell short is not, is not making that a part of the sales process from the beginning. Hey, the reality is this is, a, this is an enterprise-grade solution that's going to have a big impact, but it also requires a fair amount of lift. And, and, and from the pitches, the pitch decks that I've seen more often than not, you know, this, I mean, especially if it's a competitive deal, you want to come off as the easiest provider for implementation. That's, I, I know you're not talking about Freightway Sonar. Yeah. I don't have a professional services line item. C- right. We don't actually charge implementation. Um, but I think, but I think that's is, an issue. I think that's... I mean, look, I, I think it's, it is interesting because there is a difference between selling a... Like, there's good and bads of every business model, right? Sure. There are flaws in, hey, here's a data product go implement it, you know, this, this has this great API and you can ingest it into a system. And companies, from my observations on our business, companies that actually do the work and put the API into some decisioning system mm-hmm. and actually have someone dedicated to overseeing it are immensely successful. Totally. We get high renewals and, and, and upsells. The companies that buy the solution and don't do the work on their end, to your point, and it may be one or two or three resources, is it? Totally. Human resources, they apply to it, is where we tend to see churn. Is there, you know, you go from the, the, the buyer of the product really wants it, they turn over, and we know how much turnover in corporate America has existed the last 36 months. If it is not embedded into the company further than a single decision maker, yeah. this is our experience, it's unlikely that we're going to see a renewal out of that client. It's blowing it. I mean, you're blowing in the wind. And, and I think we've had to invest significantly in our customer success function to, to basically manage that process to, and we look at everything from, you know, Dow and Malmetrics to, to MPS uh, uh, sure. scores, all the stuff that SaaS companies spend a lot of time. Because effectively, if we sell a solution as a SaaS business and they churn within the first 24 months, I probably have lost money on that client, at least sure. in the 12 months, for sure. For sure. And so the worst thing for me is to sign something and the client churn out and I don't get the chance to, I would rather not have them as a client. You'd almost rather not have it because it impacts your churn, your your LTV. It it kills your business. Totally. Because the the cost of of training the client to use the product, because we don't charge professional services, means that I have to recoup the business from multiple years of a relationship. Totally. Which I'm incented to do that, but I think what we, what I, have, I think what you're saying is, there are products in this space. Visibility is an example of that, where the cost goes beyond the first check and beyond the first subscription. It's not just a subscription; it is the professional services line item that comes alongside that. Is where a lot of the issues are. It could, yeah, or 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 the lack thereof of that line item. I mean, you know, and and this. Your point around if there's if there's a champion at the customer for your product, it can't be just one person. Well, yeah, because you're you're screwed if that person leaves. If if there are multiple champions who are committed to seeing it as successful, then then the product will be successful and the customer gets value out of it. I mean that that when I said earlier that 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 the tech companies are partially to blame, but the customers have some accountability in the challenges too. The reality is every customer that's ever bought FreightWave Sonar has also probably bought some other technology Without somewhere. And, and, and the reality, I mean, I can't tell you how many times we go into a customer 
who says Salesforce is the worst CRM. It's like, <laughs> okay, sales, the world operates on Salesforce. And my first question is, how much did you spend on implementation? Second question is, how much did you spend training your people? And almost, I mean, without fail, it's like nothing. Or, oh, we, we emailed out some PDFs and we didn't really configure the system. We thought we'd just implement it and then tweak it. It's like, okay, you don't hate Salesforce. You just hate their default sales process because it doesn't match yours. I mean, Salesforce, we're a Salesforce shop at Freightways. It works because we have teams of people that actually manage, totally. manage the data, clean the data, and manage the process. Um, and it's not Salesforce's fault that, that it, to your point, you didn't do that because they're selling a big, big piece of software across a lot of enterprises. It's, it's the responsibility of the client to do some of that work. Well, and, and fault is an interesting word too. Like, is it, this goes back to, to something that I was, that I got at earlier, which is it doesn't really matter whose fault it is. If it doesn't get done, you're going to turn the customer 18 months in. It's going to hurt your business yep. and you're, you're, you're worse off as a result. It hurts the ROI for the customer that that's, I think that that's, I think that that's a, a big challenge that we see with, with many, if with with many many software companies in the space. So I want to I want to shift a little bit. Yeah. Uh, in the conversation, um, you're always a provocative sort of thought leader here. Um, I have this theory about. So you mentioned Salesforce. People love to hate it. Sure. Every industry I've been in, anytime there's a dominant player, doesn't matter. It was in the fuel card business. People love to hate Com Data. Sure. Uh, in the uh, mobile communications business, they used to hate uh, Qualcomm. Like yeah. Anytime you have it in load boards, they love to hate DAT. Sure. And it, it strikes me that um, as markets naturally construct themselves, I almost wonder, does, do, do we end up in a situation, I see this at Flying where everybody hates the number one listing provider. I have this theory about businesses when you have these sort of duopolies or these really tightly controlled markets and there is a market leader, everybody loves to hate it. Sure. Is that, is that your experience as well? Yeah, of course. So who, is, who are the companies in our space that drive this industry the most nuts? Where are the companies that have created the most strain or pressure on this industry that people just, they want to take down, they dream of taking them down? Well, and I, uh, I think it's, you know, you've, you've done the, um, you and I have talked about, it's a lot more fun to be the pirates. I think that there's an element, you know, it's a lot more fun to be the pirates than the Navy. So, you know, you wave the Jolly Roger flag. Um, like, I, I think that there's an element of it, like it doesn't, you know, you mentioned DAT and, and there's some, I think, you know, folks in the room are aware of, of some of the things that they've done to make themselves, to self-select into being that. They have certainly volunteered. With, yeah, they And this is a four that. or five year shift. Totally. When, when it was the old management team before Claude came into the business, Claude's gone. Yeah. When it was Don Thornton and Fergus and Buck, it was a pretty passive totally like it may have been the big sort of platform in the space but it was a very passive sort of benign yeah. leader in our market that culture has shifted in the last five years totally um and 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 so the the distinction i would make is that i think that there are some like like dat that have maybe selected into being they volunteered they volunteered they to be grid. to be um to be kind of like the 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 big the 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 bigger player, if you will, that that people 
hate. Um, and then, you know, I, I look at like, uh, I think, I think some of the legacy TMSs have had experience where maybe at different points in time, um, they've, they've, they've done actions that maybe made them an incrementally easier antagonist. But I also, I go back to customers underinvested in training and implementation. And then all of a sudden, like it's, it's because their TMS provider sucks. You're talking so, about like Trimble. I'm talking about Trimble, McLeod. Uh, I'd put Trimble, McLeod and Mercury Gate kind of all in that bucket. And like, you know, I, I mean, we're, we, we do work with all of them, but, I, but I would say that they've done some things that have made them an easier target and the industry hasn't really been kind or given them the energy that they deserve to be successful. And that goes back to this, this, this comment I've brought up a few times, which is like, it doesn't really matter whose fault it is. Perception is reality. And the reality is if people aren't happy with, if, you're, if technology is not doing what it's supposed to be, it doesn't matter why the headline is the technology sucks. So Pete, in sort of thoughts on what companies can do or startups that sort of, when you had this dominant leader, that exists for a reason, for whatever the market sort of natural evolution yeah. is. How does a company go and address, do they pick off the areas where the, com- the company has created the most tension? How do we, just take TMS as for an example, where do you think the opportunities are for an upstart? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because before you said TMS, I was going to say you want to go to kind of like the lowest friction um, and kind of like least amount of day-to-day operational pressure. What, which, TMS does is like <laughs> so. The TMS exact, is the hardest. Well, I, 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 yeah, I mean, TMSs are a really difficult place to be in, and I think that that's um, it's because they're so embedded. I mean, they're the backbone of these businesses, and um, it, but at the same time, like if you look at if, you know for a three PL or a or a carrier. Like their TMS is almost is effectively their ERP, and I can tell you that if you went into like a mid-market shipper and told them that you were going to rip out their ERP, put in a new one, and not and and spend twenty thousand dollars on implementation, the whole business would look at you like you were out of your freaking mind. Yeah, but, I mean that's the same thing we saw in fuel cards when I was in that business. Is like it, to replace Com Data, which we've talked about how much people love to hate them. It was, it was hard because you were having to replace a, a business that they didn't pay for because the, the interchange paid for it in the back end. Totally. And they had to get all the drivers with new fuel cards. And so that whole process of sort of overhauling that business was nearly impossible. And that was where the, the opportunity to disrupt comm data was, was if the, the people that didn't like them were the large fleets. Totally. Uh, the small fleets were like, hey, I'm just glad to get credit. And it's interesting when you think about that. So let's talk about what is the easiest part of the market to disrupt. Because you've talked well, about what's... TMS is, we'll say, is the hardest part of the market to disrupt or among yeah. the hardest groups. What is the easiest and lowest hanging fruit for opportunity? I mean, I think, I think some of the easiest are, is, is anywhere where there's a manual, either manual process or an offline, like someone's using an Excel spreadsheet. So I think of like, a, I mean, like, a, you know, green, green screens has had a ton of success as, a, as, as kind of a, um, a pricing engine because the reality is... Uh, it, more often than not, they're not replacing anything. They're going in and providing a solution where there wasn't one previously. And I think that that model applies across the space. Same thing, you know, with with visibility, depending on when someone adopted it, it was replacing phone calls and emails 
Um, like, you know, and, and I'm sure that the visibility providers have seen it harder to sell into an account that's already using macro point versus one that doesn't have anything. But what, what I think the, the reality is I, it's not lost on me that when, a, when an early stage venture, venture back business is in growth mode, they want to make it as easy as possible for customers to say yes. And they need the recurring revenue to continue fundraising. And so the reality is like they're incentivized to invest in customer success, take on the implementation costs in-house. The one piece of advice I would give to, and, and I guess this applies both to the customers, but, but it's specifically targeted at the, at the software companies, is you need to be really thoughtful about at what point in the scale of your business do you start introducing the need for implementation support beyond you know, your in-house customer success team. And, and just make sure that you have a path to get there. What ends up happening is people, you know, we'll, we'll, see these, we'll see SaaS companies that fundraise to series C and then realize, oh shit, we have to go back to every customer that's currently in the pipeline and resell them that they need professional services or implementation support. Um, as opposed to, oh, we knew that this was coming and starting with Series A, all new deals were coming into the pipeline. We're going to start having that conversation earlier on. Because like, uh, from my perspective and, and my experience, it's not about the actual cost. It's about feeling like you've been sold something when you're already far along in a deal. And then, you know, and then having, finding out that it's going to be more expensive than you planned for. Like, it's just about having the conversation. Pete, I told you when we came out, we would run out of time before we ran out of topics. Yeah. Unfortunately, we just scratched the surface. Uh, we'll have you back in the spring. We were back in Atlanta at the GICC. That's in Sweet. June. So we'll have back. We'll have a much more. Try to add a little bit more time. We have a ton to talk about. Yeah. Really enjoy this. Everyone, Peter. Thanks, Craig.